You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. We begin this portion of our service every Sunday the same way as we want to come together before the Word of God so that we can gain truth and comfort and conviction and help as I invite you to turn with me to our text this morning, which is Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. If you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, you can find that, of course, toward the end of the New Testament on page 190. As we come to the Word of God and, and submit ourselves to it, we pray that God will, will help us this morning. We're coming to the end of, of Revelation chapter 3 as we are considering the king's offer to belong. You know, a truth that has been coming home to me lately is simply this, that pain and suffering is clarifying. Whether it's pain and suffering that we experience ourselves, whether big or small, or pain and suffering that we see in others, it is clarifying to us. It helps to bring a clarity to our lives and to our understanding of the world and who we are with God and not only to help us understand other people in the sufferings that they face, but also that we would draw close to Christ in the sufferings that we face. I've had this going on a really small way, a small, I don't even know that I would call it a suffering, but a small experience. When I was much younger, I had perfect vision and I never quite understood adults who were complaining about their eyesight and how difficult it was to see and how what a hassle it was to have glasses. But now that I have made my way to these progressive bifocals, I can't see anything without them. Now I understand. But it's even in much bigger ways that pain and suffering is clarifying for us. When we look out at parts of the world and we see actual tyranny, it comes home to us. And it comes home to us in a unique way as Christians because we have a, a perspective on pain and suffering that the world cannot know. It, it really cannot be known apart from the grace of God in Christ. And that is that for us, pain and suffering is redemptive. It does something for us to solidify us and to draw us close to Christ. And we see that especially here in this text as we come to the end of Revelation chapter 3. We have heard, spoken to others, serious words of pain and suffering. This church at Laodicea, you remember last week at the passage just before this, they heard those difficult words of the Lord saying that he was going to expel them or vomit them from his mouth because they were neither hot nor cold. They were not uh, purely walking with him, but had been infected by spiritual bacteria that was making him sick of them. Those are hard and painful words, and yet we want to hear those as we did last week. We want to hear those in our own hearts so that we would understand the importance of how we live and that we would draw close to Christ and that we would know the redemptive value of such painful words. Because the Lord, to us, his people, even these who are our brothers and sisters in the book of Revelation in the church of Laodicea, we are experiencing something unique when he speaks to us this way. This is not the normal way that people in our world speak when they speak painful words and, 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 and attacking words and critical words. Often it is not in order to bless us. It's to condemn us. But we see here another incredible example as we come to the last part of Revelation 3, as we consider still the, 
God's work in the church of Laodicea, we see why. Why does God use those words? Why does he say something that on its face sounds so harsh, it sounds so cold, so unfeeling? But then he opens his heart to us and we see exactly what he's doing. He is using such pain and suffering, difficult, painful words in order to offer them real belonging, in order to draw them to himself. The door of this text swings on two truths this morning. Here's the first. The first truth, if we're going to understand what's going on in the church at Laodicea and see ourselves there because we are, we are this kind of people, Jesus offers his people divine fellowship. That's the first truth that we want to see this morning of the two. And then we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper together appropriately as we look at this text. This text will encourage us us, and lift up our hearts as as we celebrate that together in a few moments. But first, we want to see this truth that Jesus offers his people, even in the midst of these difficult words, divine fellowship. To understand this verse in particular, Revelation 3.20, we really have to follow our key principle of Bible interpretation, and that is that context is king. Just as in real estate, the most important principle is location, 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 here in Bible reading and interpretation, the highest principle is context, 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 to understand exactly what's going on. This is one, as I said last Sunday, one of those texts that I've often misunderstood. I've misapplied. God has been gracious still to to use it in my preaching and my evangelism. But nevertheless, we want to understand exactly what this verse is saying. We see first and must notice who he's talking to. He is talking to the church, to his people. When he says these incredible words, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. We should ask, what door is he knocking on if we want to understand this text? Well, he's knocking on the door of the church at Laodicea. We ought to ask, what kind of person is the anyone who might hear his voice and open the door? Well, this anyone is a member of the Laodicean church. I long took for granted in this text that this was a message to the entire unbelieving world in which God was placing their eternal destiny in their hands, knocking on a door and waiting for them to open the door to him so that he could come in and be with them. But that's really not the context. That's really not what is going on in Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. That's not to say that that we can't take that picture and apply it somewhat in our, our evangelism to others, that Jesus Christ certainly has made an incredible offer to the world, that, that all different kinds of people from all different places and all different colors and all different languages would come to him, most certainly true. The gospel goes to the whole world. But in this text, what is Jesus doing? He is knocking on the door of the church. And he is inviting them once again to belong to him. In scripture, there really are two spiritual scenes that are illustrated, two spiritual realities or experiences that that every Christian knows, and we pray that many more people in the world will come to know. Here's the first scene. It's the scene of conversion, of someone becoming a Christian. It's the scene of Jesus in the warmth of his house. The lights are beaming out through the windows, 
And yet we, as unbelievers, those separated from Christ by our sin, are out in the cold, apart from the warmth of his fellowship, entirely enslaved and blinded by sin. And what does Jesus do? Jesus opens the door. He doesn't only open the door, though, and stand at the threshold asking everyone to come in. He actually opens the door and goes out into the cold in search of his beloved to open our eyes and then to carry us in and to be with us forever. That's the first scene. But there is another scene. There's a scene of revival, and that's the one that we're seeing here in this text. There's a scene of revival in the church in which those who have drifted away would return again to Christ. This picture is a little bit different. It's the picture here in Revelation chapter 3 that that we, or they, are in the house, but they are at odds with Christ. They have not been living hot or cold, but rather lukewarm, and this is sickening him such that he wants to vomit them out of his mouth. But what does Jesus do? Jesus then, on the other side of that door, patiently knocks on the door of the church, offering to them a wonderful renewal and revival. Notice what he says. If anyone hears my voice, even just one member of the church at Laodicea who would hear my voice and open the door, he will come in and dine again. Now, it's a good question. Why would it be so important to make this distinction about the context of this verse? Why is that so important? Well, at least two reasons. Number one, it matters to us as Christians in our church biblically because we love Scripture and we want to exercise great care in our reading and and knowing the Word of God accurately for reading and understanding specifically what God is saying to us into the world so that we can rightly use the word of God to comfort our own hearts and to convict the world of the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that they would come in with us. But number two, this distinction is also important, not just some kind of academic biblical difference, but it matters personally. It matters corporately because a mistake of this kind, the kind that I made and the way that I understood this verse for so long actually amounts to highway robbery. It robs the church and Christians of this glorious hope of returning to our gracious king when we've strayed. That's what this verse is all about. It is about glorious hope. And what is the glorious hope? It's the hope of renewal, of revival, of divine fellowship with Christ. And there absolutely could be nothing better. Look closely at what he's promising to us. Even when we have strayed, what is he promising to us? And beware with me of the routineness of this language or this picture. Again, you may be like me, and the bit about coming in and dining is a little routine to you. It's benign, it's familiar, it's boring, it's unexciting, it's typical, it's taken for granted, of course, that doesn't really strike our interest to hear, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. But instead, consider carefully what exactly is Jesus offering when he offers for them to open the door 
and come in with them. First, he's offering them his personal presence. This is why it's such a shame that sometimes I read the Bible in a lazy way and I just might, in my Bible reading, read right over that and lose all of the richness, all of the incredible wonder of what this means. The actual personal presence of Jesus Christ coming in and dining with you, of being with you. This is hospitality. This is friendship. This is fellowship at its very best. You may know that in Middle Eastern culture, sharing a meal like this is the ultimate intimate fellowship with friends and family. I suppose this is something that's kind of lost on us a little bit in our culture. We don't quite think about those things in the same way. I wonder how even that, that, that loss on us affects even some of what happens when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It loses that richness. It can lose for me the the excitement and the comfort of what this symbolizes. It symbolizes us sitting down with Jesus Christ and fellowshipping, eating with him, eating a meal. And though it sounds strange to the world, that in fact, what we're eating and what we're drinking is Christ himself. That when we sit down at the table with him, he is the meal. He is the satisfier. He is the one who comes to live inside of us and and comfort us and care for us and make us glad. I suppose it probably would be even better if we were all to sit down and instead of just taking a little wafer and a little bit of, of the juice, that we would sit down together around an entire meal. And in quiet introspection, looking to the Lord, we would share that meal together. It would bring something out of it that we sometimes have lost, and that is this hospitality. Listen to those words, I will come into him and will dine with him. I will be your friend. I will be your fellowship. I will be hospitable to you. But perhaps above all of that, don't miss the very heart of the text. And that is a message of magnificent grace. He is offering his renewed presence to an unfaithful bride who has chosen, as you already heard last week, chosen earthly treasures of gold and clothes and health and safety and security over heavenly treasures of joy and satisfaction and gladness and fullness and comfort in Christ. We ought to go back if we want to capture the magnificent grace of this text to remember again who he's talking to. He's talking to a church that he describes this way. Listen to it again, verse 15. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to apply to your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. Therefore be jealous and repent." These are words of magnificent, enduring, unending, captivating, heart-satisfying 
grace. And that is why he says these hard words to them. Because his intention is not to drive them into despair, is it? What's his intention? His intention is not to crush them with law. His intention is to draw them to himself by his grace. And so he says to them, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine with me. Uh, And I will dine with him and he with me. But did you catch that? Did you catch something in the context? This is why we want to be careful with our Bible reading. Because there's a theme in this text about doors. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier in this text to, this, to these churches about doors? What did he say? How did he describe himself in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3? He said, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. And now suddenly in this text, he's saying, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open the door, I will come in with you. How in the world could you come into the door? It's a door that you cannot open. When he shuts doors, no one opens them. It's because even here, underneath, undergirding this truth is the incredible grace of God. Who actually is the one who will open the door? It actually is Christ. It actually is putting on display his incredible sovereign love for his bride. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens this unopenable door, I will come in. Of course, if you think about who he's speaking to, who wouldn't open that door? Which true believer in Christ wouldn't open that door? The house contains people who have ears to hear, and when they hear this offer, they open the door with Christ, and he comes in with them. This is the first application of this text to our lives this morning. I hope that as we look at these incredible passages of Scripture that we we don't just think about them as about other people, but we think about them in a way as being about ourselves, that we would every day by the grace of Christ, open the door, that we would listen to him and that we would dine with him and that we would be with him because Jesus offers his people divine fellowship. But as with all great offers, we also hear the following charge, but wait, there's more. Jesus is so gracious that his offer of divine fellowship does not simply end there in the present moment that today I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me, but rather listen to this second truth this morning that Jesus promises his people a glorious belonging now and forevermore. His offer of grace continues to get better and better. Look at verse 21. The one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. The fellowship of Christ among his revived people is not only present, but it's future. It's not only temporary now or temporal, but eternal 
Notice how Jesus cares for them and loves them with these words. Notice the kind of compassion and understanding that are expressed even at the beginning of verse 21. The one who overcomes. This theme has come up over and over and over again. Jesus has spoken about overcoming seven times, once to each of the churches. He's showing again and again what a shepherd looks like because a shepherd doesn't just go around making commands. A shepherd goes around understanding the sheep. He really understands their situation. That's why he keeps raising the issue, the one who overcomes. He wouldn't do this if he didn't understand their situation. He didn't understand what they were up against. We see this as well sprinkled all throughout Scripture in the way that God sees his people and cares for them, the way that he understands where they are and what they're going through and what they're made of. And that is in part why he shows us such unending grace. Listen to what we read even in just a couple of verses here in Psalm 103 verses 14 through 16. Now, this is kind of a a paraphrase uh, from the Living Bible, but listen to this. These words captures this, this sweet, precious essence of Jesus' view of his people. It says in verse 14, for he knows we are but dust and that our days are few and brief like grass, like flowers, blown by the wind and gone forever. We've only been through three chapters of Revelation, but in chapters two and three, Jesus continually talks about overcoming. Again, seven times, once to each church. He is saying over and over and over again to each one, I understand. I understand what you're going through. But listen here. To those who will overcome with me, he says here, I will grant to sit with me On my throne. Again, these are places in Scripture where we have to stop. We have to stop and we have to think. We have to stop and we have to read. We have to stop and we have to meditate. We have to stop and we have to break it down. What does that mean? If you want to suck the marrow of truth and comfort out of the Word of God, we've got to slow down. Let's slow down here and just take this little part in the middle of verse 21. I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, piece by piece. I will grant. These are words of absolute sovereignty. To granting is to give an authoritative gift. I will grant to you. I will give to you. No one takes from him. No one manipulates him. No one sways him. I will grant to you. But what does he grant for them? To sit. There perhaps would be nothing more comforting to people in this situation who are overwhelmed by the the realization of their sinful struggles and their drifting from Christ and, and even others who would have read this around all of the churches in the midst of persecution and real tyranny and real oppression down through the ages of redemptive history for them to hear that one day in the future, I, the King, Christ himself, who's full of grace and mercy, will grant to you to sit. You will sit in a place of rest. I understand what you're going through, and I will care for you. But you won't just sit anywhere. What does he say? He says, you will sit with me. 
It's another picture of perfect unity with Christ, who is the shepherd, who is full of love and mercy, who is tender and caring, like a nursing mother, like a perfect, compassionate father, like a a loving older brother who will take you in and you will be with him. You will be with him in particular on his throne in a place of glorious royalty. What is Jesus doing? Why is he saying this to them? What does he want them to do? He wants them to imagine. He is casting their attention, not just in this present moment of comfort that is, that is promised to them in the offer that they would belong to him in divine fellowship, but rather that they would also pair with that the future coming reality so that he would draw their hearts to long for the future coming kingdom for a time when they will have overcome with him and they will sit down with him and they will be in fellowship with him perfectly on his royal throne, never to be oppressed again by sin or suffering or the world or the devil. He wants them to imagine. He wants you and me to do the same thing. This is an important part of the Christian life, is having a spiritual imagination. You have to be able to look forward. You have to be able to long for the future. And so he's giving them a picture of the future. Think about it this way. You may have been on a vacation or somewhere, maybe overseas, where you, you were at a place of, of luxurious royalty. Maybe you, you decided to, to tour a, an old castle that still had all of those features of the the throne and the portraits and everything all around is luxurious and and beautiful and warm. You walk in and you're, you're just captivated as I would be by your surroundings. You look at all of the historic portraits on the wall of the family heads. They're all regally dressed. You stand by the enormous fireplace and imagine what it would be like to to rest in such safety within the sturdy walls of the castle. You walk through towering oak doorways, which I've done a number of times down the street, actually, at Jeffrey Mansion. Have you ever been in there? I've been in there. Every time I'm in there, I look at these doorways. They're like 10 feet tall, enormous, heavy wood doors. You almost can't even open them. And I think when I look at the pictures of the family that used to live there decades and decades ago of these children, how in the world did they open their doors? What was it like? What was it like to live there? You go into all the rooms of the castle, then you find the throne room and ascend the throne to be swallowed by its massive size. You think to yourself about what it would be like to belong there, but you don't. You know that it's just a tour and that you're going to leave, but yet you're left with the the captivating imagination of what that must be like. In fact, I imagine that as you get back to your hotel room that night, you lay in bed, and as you go to sleep, you think about that. What was that like to live there? That's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to think about with these pictures what it must be like to live there, but we don't have to think about it as people who don't belong there. We actually think about it as people who do and people who will be there. He's calling in this text for his bride to go there in her mind. She's not there yet. You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. And we know that. Because here in this world, we are surrounded by trouble and trial and temptation on every side. Every day is hard. 
but there is an eternal promise of hope that we will be there in the end with them revived and rescued. This is the value of spiritual imagination. If you want to be an overcomer, a Christian overcomer with Christ, you have to master this art of imagination. You have to spend time. You have to slow down and sit and imagine the world to come according to the word of God. You have to envision yourself where you are with Christ and long for the the coming kingdom. But even as you do that, you could say with me, even reading these words in verse 21, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. If he overcomes, he would say, I could never ascend the throne and sit there. You know better than that. You know that you can't ascend that throne and sit there. Of course you can't. But that, again, is the incredible hope of our eternal rest that is found in Christ alone. Because every time he says to the one who overcomes, he means to the one who overcomes with me. It's never a challenge or a charge that we would overcome on our own. If any of you are tough enough and smart enough and fast enough to overcome this world, then I'll give you the elite Navy SEAL Christians of the world. I'll let you sit on my throne. There are none. But rather he says to the one who overcomes, who cannot overcome, but overcomes with me, you will sit with me just as I sit with my father on his throne. Therefore, we have this hope that if we are in Christ, and we are, that we will overcome because he has overcome. And therefore, our charge is to hear him, to stay close to him, to listen to his word, to imagine the coming kingdom, to rest in our divine fellowship now as we are reminded of what he has done for us and his eternal promises, even in the midst of this difficult world. And that's why he says over and over and over again, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear to hear? That's the real question. Do you have an ear to hear? If you don't, we have the same encouragement every Sunday, flee to Christ. Flee to Christ who gives deaf people like me ears to hear, who gives blind people like me eyes to see, who gives people like me who cannot overcome, have nothing good in and of myself. I cannot do anything right or good apart from Christ. He gives it as a gift, his ultimate righteousness. If that's you, then repent, cheerfully run to Christ and place your trust and faith in him. Belong to him, belong with us because we want to overcome together. And therefore, finally, as we come to just the very end of this text and we think about that future place and even the present hope of Christ that is ours, we remember that when life is hard, and it is, and it is full of trials and troubles, and tribulation, and real tyranny, we look to Christ as the overcomer who will carry us through. Again, it is such a work of God's providence in the ways that he has 
planned our Sundays and the texts that we come to, that we would come here even on this Sunday, having heard what we've heard from the word of God, these incredible words of hope, and that we'd hear him again and again and again standing at the door of our church and knocking and inviting us by his grace, with his power, to come to him. We're going to do that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together. This is a high and holy moment for every person who knows Christ, and so it is a time that we take this quite seriously. This is a time for us to, to think about our lives. I hope that you will, to even close your eyes once you have, have gathered the elements and returned back to your seat, that you think about your life. Think about what you've heard this morning. Think about Christ. Think about what he intends to do in you, ways that you can grow and, and change to know and love him more, to be more comforted, more glad in him. And then think about him. Think about his, his goodness to us, his grace to us, so that we would draw close to him, even in these moments. There is something miraculous happening when we take the Lord's Supper. Those who belong to Christ, he ministers to. He's ministering to you. He is coming to you. He is fellowshipping with you. He is communing with you. He is comforting you. And he's comforting me. We're going to pray and ask God to do that very thing. Uh, and then Pastor Kevin will come and, and dismiss the rose so that we can gather the elements and then take, take this together. If you're a Christian, you're here today, whether you're a member of our church or not, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you happen to be with us this morning and you're not a Christian, you're still thinking about this whole business of following Jesus and what the gospel means, then this would be a time for you to, to sit and observe and pray and not to take, not until he belongs to you. And then once he does, to cheerfully take the Lord's Supper with us then. So let us pray, our Father. As we've heard these incredible words from Scripture of your magnificent grace, of your incredible patience, of your unending knocking upon our door, offering to with us open the door and come in with us and to dine with us, fellowship with us, we, we invite you and we ask you to strengthen us in every way so that we may cherish and treasure you more and more. We want you to be the ultimate hope of our hearts. We confess that there are lots of other little hopes that get in the way. They become too big. They amount to ultimate things, and they, they threaten to steal us away from you, but we know that your hand is not too weak. Your arm is not too short that you would ever lose us. And so knowing that, we want to draw close to you. We want to know you. We want to be encouraged by you. We want to be used by you in the world. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, we pray that you, Lord, would minister to us, that you would comfort us and strengthen us with your grace and your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.